While we're waiting just a moment, I want to make sure all of you have your Bibles out and they are open to the uh, book of James, which is where we're going to be studying today. And also um, letting you know that there were some notes in the back, and if you didn't get them as you came in, you might want to sneak back out there and grab a set of notes. It's kind of hard to follow along if we don't have a set of notes. Well, I look to be uh, all set up, so I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for a chance to, to gather again in your name, to look into your word. Uh, we ask that you would bless this time, uh, our time together, and that it would be a blessing to those that listen. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, have never taught the book of James before, and uh, I, I chose it because it's always been a, a challenging book for me, and I figured if it was a challenging book for me, it might be a challenging book for someone else. And so we're going to dive in to the book of James together. I'm calling the lesson series James to the Twelve, because that's who he writes to, is to the Twelve Tribes, James to the Twelve. And this per first lesson uh, is uh, designed to deal with the tough stuff. And he gets right into it when he gets into the first chapter. So we're going to start dealing with some tough stuff. But first, let's figure out which James. There are at least four James in the New Testament. Uh, some argue there are three, that a couple of names are, are, or titles, rather, are interchangeable. Um, I put in your notes that there are four, though. I think there are. There's, there's James that's the brother of John, you know, that uh, was a fisherman and a buddy of Jesus's. Uh, James, that particular James, is known as James the Less, uh, and, and, in, and you can look him up in Matthew 10. Also in Matthew 10 uh, is, is a James by the name of James, the son of Alphaeus. Some commentators think they might be the same James. I don't think so. I think that's a, a number two James. And number three James is, is very casually mentioned in Luke 6. Uh, as, as the, uh, the father of another apostle named Judas. We know absolutely nothing about him. Which brings us to our fourth James and the one that I believe is the writer of this book. He is James the Just, sometimes uh, referred to as James the Less, but I think it's James the Just, and he is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, those of you that uh, have a Catholic background, your little mind is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus had brothers and sisters? Yes, he did. He had brothers and sisters. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, the writer of the book Jude, uh, are, are probably the most difficult book in the Old Testament, to, or in the New Testament, rather, to understand, is another half-brother of Jesus's. So James, uh, that is writing our book, he is a half-brother of Jesus, and, and he has a brother named Jude. Now, James was not an apostle, so he was not uh, in the inner circle walking around with Jesus the whole time in his teaching. As a matter of fact, we're not even sure that he became a believer in who Jesus was until after the resurrection. And uh, if you turned in John chapter uh, 7, uh, verse number 5, the Bible says, for, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. There's a time period during his public ministry when, when the brothers and, and in fact his mother are, are not sure what Jesus is up to. Who, who is this guy? What's he doing? Uh, is he really the son of God? Uh, they've, they've watched him grow up. They've got a lot of evidence, but they're not convinced until after the resurrection. 
Um, James, is, er, James, our writer of our, our book, I think falls into that category. What happens, though, is when he becomes a believer, he becomes a leader. And as a matter of fact, he is the leader of the first church. The church sprang up in Jerusalem, and Judah, er, James became the leader of that, that local congregation. If you get into the book of Acts and you start working your way through the book of Acts, you're going you're gonna to see a bunch of leaders pop up. But in the early church in Jerusalem, it's James that's the leader of the church. When we get to the big council in Acts 15, the leader of that council is James. He is a, he's a prominent figure, but I don't think he comes to really understand it all until after the resurrection. He never refers to himself in his relationship with Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm the brother. In fact, if you look at James, he identifies himself in, in verse 1 as James, a servant. Some translations would have said a bondservant of Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm his brother. Hey, I was there when he was growing up. Hey, you know, I'm third on the pecking list and he's, I don't know, five. I, I don't know where he, where he landed on the list. But he doesn't refer to himself in his familial setting. He refers to himself as a bondservant. And those of you that are students of the Old Testament, you're going to remember that a bondservant was a slave that was being let go. They had earned their freedom. But when they earned their freedom, they turned around to their owner and said, no, I don't want to go. I love worshiping. I love serving you. And then that bondservant would be taken to the to the doorpost of the house and, a, and an awl, a, a, a spiky thing, would, would be taken with his ear and they would cut a little niche out of the bottom part of their ear as a sign and a symbol to anyone that would see him, hey, this is a, this is a freed but wants to hang around bondservant. And, and that's the word that James uses for himself. That's how he identifies himself. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, not his half-brother. Now, tradition has us referring to James with a, a number of, of, of terms. One of them I particularly like was camel knees. Camel knees. And the reason it was used is because his knees apparently were all knotted up and, and calcified. And, and the assumption was that he had spent so much time in prayer on his knees that they'd kind of gnarled up. I, I don't know that for a fact. It's tradition. But he was definitely a man of prayer. And, and most of the commentators that follow the, the historicity of the early church believe that he was martyred, probably stoned to death, in about 62 AD. So who's the recipient of, of our letter? Well, if you read the very next portion of verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations, to the 12 tribes. That's why I'm calling this series James to the Twelve. The Twelve Tribes is a, is a title or a reference to, to Israel, to the nation of Israel. And if you went back in your mind to the Old Testament, you know that, that, that out of the Twelve Tribes of Jacob, Jacob's Twelve Sons, there became Twelve Tribes in Israel. And, and we finally kind of, or we, we leave them in our minds in, in the, in the, um, in the uh, book of Joshua, when they come into the promised land and they get dispersed out into all their, their areas. From that point forward, we don't usually hear them referred to as the tribes. But James picks that up because James is writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to Jewish Christians. He's going to, he's going to make lots of references to things that will make sense to Jews. 
and, and it says to the scattered. Now, if you know anything about what happened to the church, you know that by the time you get to Acts chapter uh, 8, the, the early church that started in Jerusalem came under persecution and had to scatter. Truthfully, they wouldn't have moved out. Even though in Acts chapter 1 they were told to go to the, to the uttermost parts of the earth, they wouldn't have probably gone except that the Lord provided a, a persecution. They had to go. And in that persecution, now they have scattered all over the then known world, mostly around the Mediterranean area. And James is writing to those scattered Jewish believers who have now put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now the book itself is kind of fascinating. It's fascinating because it has a very distinct bent to its message. And it is a distinct bent that is totally different than much of the rest of the New Testament. It is so different that, that many of the church uh, leaders, those that, 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 looked, uh, that we look to uh, for leadership and understanding God's word, many of those leaders did not want to embrace the book of James. They did not want it, and here's why. Paul wrote primarily his 13 epistles. A recurring theme that just runs through all of the New Testament is the just shall live by faith. The Catholic Church was, was forcing uh, folks to buy indulgences and do all kinds of things to show their faith. It was a very showy time during the Middle Ages, and it was a very difficult time for the church. And here comes uh, Martin Luther, who, who is going to become a believer on the, on the back of Paul's writings. The just shall live by faith. I'm coming to Jesus by faith. I'm putting my trust in him. I'm not earning it. I'm not buying it. I'm not providing some performance for it. It is by faith. And then here comes James. James writing a book not to defy or in opposition, but as a counter to, as a fulfillment of the message of the, of the, um, the, the, the truth that the just shall live by faith. He's not arguing against that. He's arguing a fulfillment of it. But because it was such a difficult concept, many didn't even want to embrace it. Martin Luther, when he, when he, when he published his Bible, he took the book of James, he also took the book of Jude and the book of Hebrews, and he put them on a, on a different level. He, you know, in the front of, front of his New Testament, he had all these other books, and then kind of an, an appendix. Oh yeah, I'm gonna throw James in. Oh yeah, I'm gonna throw in Jude. I, I don't know. Uh, there was there was not much there was not much quoting of the Old Testament excuse me of the New Testament that included James. In fact, until about the middle of the 200s, about 240 or so, the historian or origin is one of the first ones that actually quotes from James. They weren't buying it. They did mm, this message of 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 doing things and pleasing God by your works that 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 in their minds was running in opposition to. The just shall live by faith. You add to the fact that Jesus is only mentioned twice in this book. Right here in our first uh, little section, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse number 1, James says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. That's the only two times that Jesus is even mentioned in the book of James. So I'm, I'm giving you a sense that, that it's a different book. It's a different book also because it is totally practical. 
if you, if you could put your arms around the, the book of Proverbs, for example, in the Old Testament, that is just one instruction after another on how to show your faith. James is like that. It's a very practical book. In fact, it's been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. It's also a reflection of the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you read Jesus' message, which we often call the Sermon on the Mount, and then you read the book of James, your, your head's going to be doing this. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh. Very similar. Lots of allusions uh, uh, in, in, um, in uh, James out of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's very authoritative. James wrote this as a you gotta. This is not optional. When he's going to tell you to show your faith by your works, he's not saying, and if you feel like it. In fact, um, of, of the 108 verses that constitute the book of James, there are 54 of verbs. You will. I command you, you will. James has got um, a heart to make sure that, that believers demonstrate what's going on in their heart of faith. And they demonstrate it by following uh, and, and, and living out what they say they believe. Martin Luther referred to this book as a, as a letter of straw. But it's not really straw, it's just the counterbalance. It's the, it's the other shoe that drops. When, when we consider all of the truth that, that, that Paul gives us throughout the New Testament about living by faith, it's a, it's a compliment. It's the next step to say, well, how do I know that that's your faith? It's displayed in the way you live your life. We've said before in Bible study that if somebody moves into your neighborhood, in, in, a, in a matter of weeks, they should be able to say, oh, the people in the, in the blue house on the corner, the, those, are, those, those guys are different. Those, those are Christians. Uh, you know, Sunday morning like clockwork. They drive out their driveway. Uh, you, you, you can tell by the way that their kids behave. You can tell by the way the husband uh, loves and cares for his wife. There's, there's evidence that those people down there are a little different. James is saying that's the, that's the thrust. What you believe is going to get displayed. And it kind of crescendos in chapter 2 in verse number uh, 18. The Bible says this, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. You show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I will display what's going on in my heart. It's not A or B, it's A and B. What we believe shows up. That's why it's so heartbreaking when we have a, a leader in Christianity and they've, they've got some reputation in the community and, and then their life falls apart. It, it's so damaging because when you see a believer, you have a level of expectation. Now, we all fail. We all have moments when, when we say to ourselves, looking in the mirror, oh, that, that stunk, that didn't work. But, but as a whole, someone should be able to look at our lives and say, yeah, they're doing their best to follow hard after Jesus. So you get the idea? James is different. There's not a lot of references to Jesus himself in this book. The early church was not too excited about James because he's emphasizing the display of their faith. But I think it is an incredibly practical book. So the first topic that's going to show up in chapter 1, and, and I want to read verses 1 to 8 as the beginning, is this whole issue of trials. 
or if we were going to use a new, a new word that might make better sense to all of us, troubles. When I first became a believer and I read the book of James, if any of you have a King James Bible, you'll remember this. It said, count it all joy when you encounter diverse temptations. Well, what are diverse temptations? I mean, no wonder they couldn't get the book of James. Yeah, diverse temptation, diverticulitis, is that a thing of your stomach? No, think the word troubles. So when you see the word trials, and in a moment you'll see the word tempting, and then you'll see the word testing, I want you to translate that in your mind to troubles. And, and, and let's read it to get together and see if we can make sense. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, remember troubles, of many kinds, because you know that the troubles of your faith develop perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's the double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The first part of the, the understanding of this book is the outward trials, the stuff that happens around us, the stuff that happens on the exterior. It's not the stuff we drum up. We'll get to that in a moment. This is the outward stuff. Now, what, what kind of trials was the church going through that, that James would have this so clearly in his mind? Well, Nero was on the, was on the throne. He was the, the, the Roman emperor at the time. And he's going to have this James stoned at one point. But he's going to burn Rome, and he's going to blame all the Christians for it. Terrible things happen to Christians thereafter. He's going to end up being the one that likely crucifies Peter and Paul. And, and most of the other apostles are going to get martyred during the same time. They are scattered and things are going badly for them. So in verse number one, or in verse number uh, uh, one, excuse me, verse two, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy, much like, again, back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, when he starts the Beatitudes. You remember those? Blessed be the man that da 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 da, blessed be the man da da da. It's the same blessed, it's the same concept. Consider it joy. Mark it down as something to be grateful for. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when you know, I get a flat tire and my, my uh, schedule is disrupted, I don't, I don't immediately go, oh, this is good. I'm really enjoying this. This is excellent. Just a little, you know, count it all joy. I love this. Yes. No. Not too long ago, I was down at the harbor, and my friend Barb and I often will go down there and have dinner. And we had stopped and got breakfast for dinner kind of thing. And we had had pancakes and syrup. Now, I am a, a non-sticky girl. See how my hands are already doing this? It's like, oh, just the thought of it. I don't like sticky on me. My mom used to peel an orange except for the very bottom part and put a wet paper towel on it so I could eat it. And if it dripped, it got on the paper towel and didn't get on my fingers. Well, that particular day, we're sitting down at the harbor. I was so careful with my meal, not a drop of sticky got anywhere. And right at the end, I had the cup that had the leftover syrup in it on my little, you know, styrofoam thing, not thinking. I moved. It went. It went all down an area that well, I will not define for you, but you can mentally figure it out. 
I am freaking out. It's all over me. It's all over the car. I'm trying to wipe it up. Now it's all over my hands. I'm sitting there. I jumped out of the car. I'm standing by the car. I've decided to take off my jeans in the harbor. I opened the second door behind me, creating this little closet where I'm now going to disrobe. I looked around and said, this is not such a swell idea. Sherry Whirl should probably not be disrobing at the harbor. I, I got back in the car and I said, don't touch anything, we're going home. And I drove home, I didn't move. I walked straight from the car into the shower, fully dressed. It was a, not a good moment. I assure you, I did not say, boy, this is joyous. What, what James is trying to say though is, is get a mindset. Don't be shocked when the battery doesn't work. Don't go out of your gourd when you spill a little syrup. Don't, don't allow Satan and his crowd to so disrupt your entire mindset that you, can't, that you can't move forward with your life. Consider it pure joy because God is at work. What's he at work at? Well, you're going to face troubles or trials of many kinds. That word trial there, it, it, it is a noun version of a, of a verb. And all the verb means is to test, to, to see if there's some proof. It's like that old expression, is there proof in the pudding? You know, is there, is there evidence to prove? So when he says that there are trials, there are testings, there are opportunities to see if there's any proof. That stuff you say you believe, here's a chance to see if it's true. And then, and then on down he says, then the testing of your faith. It's a very similar word again. The word testing there means to find proof. And, and then down in verse 13 and 14, he's going to come up with the same thing. When tempted, when tested, when put, put in a situation where they're looking for proof, no one should say, and it goes on to talk about something else. I'll get to that in a minute. My point being is each time the word trial or testing or even temptation shows up, this is a trouble that's occurred, and it's there because God's allowing an opportunity to see if there's proof in the pudding. Are you really who you say you are? Do you really commit your life to Christ? Are you believing that he's sovereign? Do you trust him with your family, with your house, with your car, with whatever? So the overall purpose of this, of this testing, of these trials, is to see if there's, if there's some proof. I read a story about some missionaries. This must have been a while back, but it was in the, the country of Zaire. Um, which used to be called the Belgian Congo, so it must have been back a ways. But a bunch of missionaries showed up in that particular area, and, and, the, and the tribal people that were in that, in that area didn't trust them. And so, unbeknownst to the missionaries, they devised a plan to slowly and secretly poison the missionaries. And so, over time, they, they poisoned all the missionaries and watched them die. One by one, all the children, all the adults got ill, and, and they were buried. When they saw, when the, the, the indigenous people saw how the missionaries lived, even though they were dying of a terrible poisoning, when they saw how they were living during that, that period and ended up dying with such character, the, 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 uh, the folks in that area were so convinced of their message that in mass they came to Christ. Because they were able to see the proof. Now, I don't think we have to go through a poisoning to, to have that, that circumstance. But that's the idea of this passage. 
when we, when we have a trial, when there is a testing, when there is a sense of being tempted, when the troubles are there, it, it allows us an opportunity to display what's really going on in our hearts. And the purpose of that is to develop our character. The Bible says that when, when the testing of your faith is being developed, it's gonna create perseverance. And then perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, mature and complete, having everything you need. When, when Psalm 23 is quoted, the Lord is my shepherd, what's the next phrase? I shall not want, I am complete. I have all I need. I, I have the reservoir in my character to meet any demand, any situation. I'm going to be able to persevere. Persevere is one of my favorite Greek words, uh, partially because I like the way it sounds. It's hupomeneo. Don't you like it? Hupomeneo, hupomeneo. Uh, it simply means to bear under a weight. So like if you re reached down, got a, a very heavy a weight, a box, and you got it up on your shoulder, but it was so heavy you couldn't stand up straight, you were bending over, but you got it. That's, that's perseverance. That you're able to hold or bear up under a weight. When we have these troubles, and they, and they are found to be a, a, a real indicator of our character, our character gets developed. There's no other way to develop character without trials and tribulations. The goal is maturity to make us complete. And the resources, according to James, are, are we ask for wisdom? And he says right there, when we ask, he gives it to us. First John chapter 5, verse 14 says, this is the confidence that we have, that if we ask, he hears and gives the wisdom necessary. I pray a lot for wisdom. I pray for those around me that they would have wisdom. When someone's ill, I always pray that the doctor has wisdom and makes wise choices. If, if, I, if I'm praying for a leader, a Christian leader, I pray that they have wisdom to make good choices for people and, and their ministries. Wisdom is so important, and, and it comes when we ask for it from God. We ask for it by prayer. The simple asking in his name. And then, and then we have the faith that God actually answers it. Hebrews chapter 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We have to have faith. Those three things, wisdom, prayer, and faith, they go together. Those are the resources that help us be able to identify the steps that are going on in our lives, the character that's being built. I, uh, I read a story about uh, a guy, he, he brought a bunch of people from another country over here and uh, he allowed them all to go to the, to the mall area to go shopping. And he knew that they were gonna get lost and so he said, here's a phone, if you, if you get confused, call me and, and, I'll, and I'll have you go to the corner and you tell me the names that are on the street signs there and I'll know where you are and I can pick you up. And so one of the guys got lost, called him and he said, well go outside, go to the corner, go, go to the sign. The, the two signs there that are, that are on the corner and read them to me. And the guy went out and, and he said, okay, I'm standing right here at the corner of walk and don't walk. <laughs> I think that's what happens when we have trials in our lives and we're whining about it. God's put a sign up, walk that way, don't walk that way. It's, it's, the, it's the signpost through wisdom, through prayer, through faith, we're able to put 
some, some proof into the pudding of what we believe. Now, James is going to give two illustrations in verses 9 through 11 about this, this, uh, this outward blessing of testing. And he says in, in uh, let's start with uh, verse 9, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildfire. He says the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant, its blossom fails, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even when he goes about his business. But blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The two illustrations he gives or the examples he gives of this kind of testing is the two extremes, poverty or, or prosperity. When, when we're on the poverty end, we've got nothing. What an opportunity to show what's in our heart. Because the external stuff is, is not there. On the other hand, when you got a lot, that's also a time to show what's in your heart. When, when we're on one end of it, we're having nothing. But on the other end of it, we have an abundance. Both situations afford us an, an opportunity to answer the question, how do we handle finances? How did you handle it, maybe even now, when you have very little? And, and how do you handle it when you have a lot? What, what do you do when you have nothing? And what do you do when you have too much? It's a chance to show the working of your character, which is the working of your faith. And he mentions a reward here. Now, Christians don't like to talk about rewards. It's almost as if... Um, you know, somehow that cheapens everything. We should do it without a reward. You ever tried to train a dog? What, what do you use? Your sweet voice. Sweetie, don't do that. Please don't pee on the floor. No, no, no. That's not nice. Does that work? No. Those little treats you get from uh, Chewy.com, yeah? That's what works. You re repeat a, a certain command or a certain suggestion. When it's done right, you reinforce it with a treat. It, it's not a bad way to be trained. Rewards are not bad in and of themselves. We don't want just to be uh, motivated by rewards, but there's nothing wrong with being motivated by rewards. And, and James mentions a crown, a crown here, uh, a crown of life. Now, there are three or four other crowns mentioned in the Bible, and I put them in your notes. There's a crown of rejoicing in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians. There's a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy, and there's a crown of glory in 1 Peter. But turn with me to the book of uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, lest you think that we're just going to be like the dogs and we only perform, uh, you know, when we're going to get a treat. What do we do with these crowns when God does reward those who've learned how to, how to deal with their testing or trials? Look at uh, chapter 4 of Revelation and uh, let's see, well, verse 9, I guess, or verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, You are worthy, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The crowns are our opportunity to lay something at the feet of Jesus in the throne room by way of saying thank you for all of the blessings that have been ours. So James is just saying, look guys, when the trials come, count it a blessing, count it a joy. 
try to get a mindset that will change the, 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 the direction of the narrative so that you can see this is useful for the development of our character. Now back to the book of James because there is another kind of trial that's going to come up and this is the trials that are inward. The ones that we've already talked about in the early part of this passage are all things that happen to us externally. But, but now in chapter uh, 1, verse number 13, he starts talking about some inward kinds of trials. He says, when you're tempted, when you, when you have a trial, no one should say, well, God is, is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and he's enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Look, guys, there is a, there is a set of trials that, that we have a part in making. And that's when we respond to sin. Now, I put a few principles down in your notes. I want to just go over them quickly with you, lest you get uh, confused. Yes, God does send trials. Lots of times. Lots of times in my life. Lots of times in the Bible. I, I just put a few of them down. Genesis 22, verse number 1. This is when God's testing Abraham. He specifically says, I'm going to test you. Take your son, your only son. And he's going to take Isaac up and, and offer him on, on a, as a sacrifice. He specifically says, this is a test. And then, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's talking about them wandering around for 40 years in the desert. And again, he uses that terminology. I led you around for 40 years. This was a test. And, and then he tests Hezekiah's heart in 2 Chronicles 32. God does send trials. God is not just oopy-goopy in heaven. He is not just, you know, a, the grandfather figure that some would, would, would think. He is a dynamic God who wants the development of my character to keep moving forward. And one of the ways to do that is to provide these trials, these testings, these troubles that will ultimately develop my character. But secondly, God does not nor ever test us by tempting us to sin. We are tempted by our own evil desires. One of my first questions to the Lord is, why did he give Adam and Eve free will? I don't get it. Why, why did he do that? It messed everything up. Because then I got free will. I, I don't know why he did that. But I know that he does not me to sin. He is not dangling something before me, trying to get me to, 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 to fall into a trap. He does not entice us. We entice ourselves. In fact, I put principle number three, that there's kind of a cycle to sin. We get enticed. Another way of looking at that is we get drug, drug away. Something, something snatches our attention. Our, 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 our idea is born. Uh, there's a, there's a, a desire that's conceived. It's not sin yet, but, but I'm looking at it, and it might be. And then what happens? When, when sin begins, there's actually a rebellion. I go from, oh, that, that's a very nice-looking gentleman, to, oh, that's a nice-looking gentleman, to, and your mind continues. And rebellion now has happened inside your own heart. And then you allow sin to have its full sway. You sit and dabble with it, either mentally or emotionally or in some other form or fashion. And then ultimately the result is there's a spiritual death. There's a, there's a giving in. 
And, and when that happens, we're a, we're a mess. We need God to, to intervene because we've allowed an inward trial. We've allowed something to, to pop up. An addiction to pornography doesn't happen the first time something pops up on your computer. It happens when we dabble with it. It happens when we stay at it. It happens when we allow it to have its way. And, and then we need, we need God to provide the way out. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, verse number 13. He says, No temptation, no trial has seized you except that which is common to man. It happens to all of us. But God is faithful. He will not let you be trial tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are in this trouble he will provide a way out so that you can stand up endure hupomeneo get under that burden and lift it up god is into the re, into the redeeming process after we repent so an inward trial that we're dabbling with that's that's being created by us we have to we have to stop and say wait a minute who, who am I? What is God expecting of me? I, I am, to use a, a uh, Bible term, I'm a first fruit. Now, if you've never used that phrase in reference to yourself, it's a cool term. It comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, the first place, Deuteronomy 26. The Israelites were told when they got into the promised land to give God the first fruits of their harvest, the best stuff that came out first. Um, I went with a friend one time to, uh, to pick strawberries in a, a strawberry field, and, and people had been picking it for a day or two. And by the time we got there, all that was left was the ones that, that were hidden underneath, and they were little gnarly ones and half green, and they weren't very cool. And I was told that if you were there the first day and you went through first person, you know, gigantic, cool, lovely uh, strawberries were available. They were the first fruits. God uses that term in reference to us. He says, you guys are my first fruits. You, you are a symbol of all that, that I want to do into the world. You've come to Christ. You, you have placed him by faith on the throne of your heart. And now you get to be set aside for God's glory. So the inward trials that might be there, we have to, we have to stop and think about this a minute. We, we have to go, well, hold on a second. What is, the, what is the point here? The point is we are first fruits. We are on display. We're the best of the best. We're the, we're the hit. We're the bell of the ball. We're his kids. When I was a child, my dad, when we were going to someone's house that was new, one of the last things he would say to me before we'd walk out of the house is, remember you're a whirl. You know, what was he trying to say? Got a little, got a little testimony here. We got a little, you know, little reputation. Cool your jets, you know, they're going to know your Commander World's daughter. Remember, remember. I went off to college, that was the last thing he said to me, is remember you're a world. I forgot it a few times, but it's still a good injunction. That's what God's saying. Remember you're a first fruit. You're one of my kids. So we're at the end of the lesson, and I always like to end my lessons with, with the question, so what? So James is talking about how to deal with trials. How to deal with the external and the internal trials of life and, and to be able to count it all joy when they occur. So what? So the tough stuff of life, how do we deal with it? I think there's, I think there's two takeaways in this lesson. One is to remind yourself that tough stuff 
does have a purpose. It's not accidental. You may think it's accidental when, when your car has a flat, but it's actually an opportunity. It's a chance to pause. It's a chance to, to reorient your thinking. It's a chance to, to realize your schedule is at his disposal. Tough stuff has a purpose. How we deal with the difficulties of life either affirm our faith or, or they call it into question. If you're out in front of your house kicking things and cussing at the top of your lungs and throwing things at your children because you discovered a flat tire, the lady down the street is probably going to go, thought they were believers, thought they were Christians. What's going on here? Tough stuff gives us a chance by an act of our will, not necessarily an act of our emotions. Sometimes you just have to tell yourself no. The whole reason that fasting is in our, in our Bible, and when God says, when he refers to fasting, he says, when you fast, it's not, it's not if you do, it's when you do. When you fast, you know, you're supposed to be all cleaned up and all, so, so people don't go, oh, she's fasting. It, it's an opportunity, though, to tell yourself no. No, you're not eating today. No. No. Telling yourself no is at the heart of following after Jesus. And in this case, tough stuff gives us a chance to say to ourselves, no, I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not going to throw things, and I'm not going to make this my children's fault. It's a dumb flat tire. And yes, it's messing up our schedule, but it's not the end of the world. I'm going to find some joy in this. So I said here that during your devotional time this next week, I I'm encouraging you to say out loud, Here's what you say, in spite of my current circumstances, in, in spite of a diagnosis I got, in spite of something terrible that's going on financially, in spite of my kid being incredibly rebellious right now, I'm going to live out my faith by, and you fill in the blank. It's an act of your will, not an act of your emotions. It's a way of thinking about it slightly different. I was reading about the year 1809. In 1809, uh, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was, was tromping across Europe. And everyone in the, in the cities and villages all around the continent of Europe, all that they were talking about were the battles of Napoleon. Where was he? How many people were killed? Who did he wipe out today? Whatever. But this particular article went on to note how many people were born that year. Who, who were they? Who was born during the time when everybody's talking about the battles of Napoleon, not the births of, listen to this, uh, Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Gladstone, a, a great British uh, leader, Tennyson, a writer, uh, Mendelssohn, the, mu the musician. N nobody's thinking about who was born in 1809. All they were thinking about was, was Napoleon doing his thing. When something happens in our lives, we have to reorient our minds by an act of our will, not by an act of our emotions. And the second thing I wanted to say to you is that tough stuff, tough stuff can kind of be seen, if you think about it, as, as a badge of honor. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to buy that. And, and, and clearly in my own life, there have been times when I didn't want to buy it. But tough stuff can be a, a, a sign or a... Uh, some proof of, of our allegiance to the Lord. It's a way to say, 
no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna react this other way. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet the test on, uh, head on. I'm gonna affirm that I'm part of the first, first fruits. I'm gonna, I'm gonna think about God's view of me. God's view of me is not he's trying to zap me. He's not out to get me. But, but, but I, I'm, I'm gonna take another look at this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change the story or the narrative in my mind. Uh, you guys, most of you know I'm a military uh, brat and my dad was in the Navy and part of the Navy, uh, one of the subgroups are the Navy SEALs and uh, the Navy SEALs are an amazing group. They, they are trained right down here in San Diego at a, at a special school called BUDS. I think it stands for Basic Underwater Demolition uh, uh, SEAL Training. But, but in BUDS, it's, a, it's an awful, horrible, difficult time of training and um, they go 110 hours at one point without sleep they 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 have all kinds of testings with with physical and emotional and 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 even psychological stuff um, up to and including something they call pool camp they put them in full uniforms and full scuba gear gear put them in the bottom of the pool and then knot up their 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 airline and what has to happen is They've got to get control of themselves to work the problem so that unknot the, the line so they can get up and, and, and live. The truth of the matter is when 9-11 when happened, our government wanted to start training more, more people at BUDS. And so they were, they were looking at who successfully makes it through because there's a 94% attrition rate. Only 6% of them make it through. And they were saying, well, who are those guys? Let, let's find more of them. And at first they thought they were the, the big burly, you know, workout guys. They're the first ones that ring the bell and went out of there. What they discovered after 9-11 is the people that make it through buds are car salesmen. You say, car salesmen? What is the deal about a car salesman? Because a car salesman has had to deal with so many disappointments. He don't care. He just keeps changing the narrative in his head. You didn't buy, but she probably will. You didn't buy, but she might. You didn't buy, but she might. They change the narrative in their head and then just keep going and have a successful career. That's the kind of per person that makes it through buds. Guys, I think that's the kind of person that makes it through the Christian life. It's the one that changes the narrative. This is not a bad day. This is not an end of the world. It may be something tragic. I'm not minimizing that. But at some point and in some way, you and I have to look at each other and say, no, I am going to respond differently. I'm going to look at it differently. I'm going to think about it differently. And when we do that, we have a measure of, of success, spiritual success. We find some proof in the pudding. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this truth. James is on to something, and I think it's a powerful way to start this book. Thank you for the truth of your word. Apply it now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming. It would have been no fun without you, for sure. Those of you that are watching online, thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll turn.